If you're talking about taking it seriously, that the first House of Blues gig that we did, uh, we had this guy who was acting as our we did, was he our agent? I mean, it, it was a joke. He like, was our friend. He was a friend of ours who wanted to be our manager. We we're like, oh, we if we're going to be serious, you should have an agent. So you got a friend that pretends to be your agent. But he yeah. was he did he he kept, he mailed like forty two press packs to the house. Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Here to introduce you to the great musicians and music businesses and organizations of Wisconsin. Every week, Wisconsin Music Podcast will be bringing you great information on what's happening in the Wisconsin music world. For our music-loving listeners, we'll bring you music that you haven't even heard of yet from unique and talented artists and hear about their journey so far. You'll either hear live performances of their songs or songs from their selected discography. For our musicians out there wondering what they can do to further their recognition, we'll be calling upon Wisconsin music businesses and organizations to enlighten you on what they're doing to help further your music journey. And now, here's your host, Zach Fell. Thanks, Dean. This is Zach Fell with Wisconsin Music Podcast. So glad you guys were able to tune in. This is episode two, Fat Function. Today on Wisconsin Music Podcast, we have Al Falashi and Tim Whalen. They are the founding members of Fat Function, and they're going to tell us basically the whole history of Fat Function from the very beginning through today. So I'll see you guys on the other side of the interview. I'm here with Al and Tim of Fat Function, a Madison-based funk band. We're going to be talking about their experiences of touring and recording and kind of about where they started out originally. So let's start with Al. Al, you grew up in Kenosha, correct? Uh, I did, yes. So why don't you kind of tell us a little bit of growing up in Kenosha musically. You know, did you start out middle school or high school band and the instruments you played and kind of go from there into where you got to play with Fat Function? So I was born into a pretty musical family. My, uh, my father was a jazz drummer and my two older sisters uh, both sang and p played the piano. Um, I was kind of an oops. I came 11 years after my two sisters, who are a year apart. Um, I don't think my parents were planning on having me, but my dad was probably pretty happy that he eventually got his, his son instead of two daughters. Um, and uh, so he had me sitting behind a drum kit when I was old enough to sit up and hold sticks. My parents forced me to take piano lessons when I was a kid because that's what my sisters did. At the time, I hated it, but obviously, as, you, as uh, many people who write music nowadays knows that that's an invaluable skill. And um, so I am grateful that they forced me to do it at the time. But uh, what is it, in fifth grade, when, they, when the band program starts to roll around schools and they ask you what instrument you wanna play, my dad took me down there fully intending me to be a drummer. And we walked in the door and the, the, the guy who owned the, the uh, music store in Kenosha was called Pacetti's Music. And Emil Pacetti was in the corner and he was a really good saxophone player and he was tearing it up in the corner. And I came in and I heard him play it and I was like, dad, what is that? And he was like, son, that's a saxophone, but the drums are over here. And <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to buy a, a drum set. Well, we would have to buy a saxophone. And I was like, but dad, I want to play the saxophone. And so 
He, uh, he begrudgingly said yes to the saxophone, uh, probably mainly because it was a jazz-based instrument. He was a jazzer, so uh, right. I'm guessing he probably wouldn't let me have let me pick bassoon or uh, you know oboe or something like that. Um, but saxophone he was cool with, and um, Kenosha has a, an amazing uh, music program. Yes, they do. In the public school system there, it, it is, uh, we had, uh, and I... My, I just happened to come through at a time where I had two of the most incredible teachers. Ken Wheely was my junior high. It's guess I'm old enough that it was junior high back then, not middle school. But Ken Wheely was my junior high teacher, uh, very inspirational, uh, and a jazzer himself. Uh, and then the the great Alex Sable at Bradford, and uh, we had a killer band. Um, and back actually in fat function, Courtney Larson is our trombonist. She, uh, went through those same two music programs with me. Uh, uh, another good friend, uh, Jeff Mattern from Mama Dig Down's Brass Band, which is probably another band you should have on the, the podcast, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. The three of us went through school at around the same time and went through the Wisconsin honors, uh, project, which is another great, uh, uh program in, yes, in the state is. of Wisconsin. It's incredible. Um, and then we all decided to go try out for a scholarship at, uh, summer music clinic, which is a, essentially a glorified band camp at, uh, UW Madison. And you try out for the Wisconsin music, uh, the, for the music clinic scholarship, which is they give out 10 scholarships every single year. Uh, and you have your choice of going to either UW Madison or UW Milwaukee. Uh, you don't have to major in music, but you have to take uh, an ensemble every single semester, and it's a tuition waiver. It's free tuition. Um, and uh, so Courtney and I are the same age. We went to go try out our junior year of high school, and uh, I moved into the dorm, and I heard a, a little bit of a ruckus coming from down the hall uh, on, the, on the male floor. And uh, not knowing anybody there, I was like, well, let's go see what's going on here. And I walked into uh, Mr. Mr. Tim Whalen's room, <laughs> and he was uh, with a bunch of his friends. He is a year older than me, so he had already won his scholarship and was coming back uh, the summer in between his senior year of high school and his freshman year of college to fulfill once you get the scholarship, you got to come back to the camp that summer. So he was he knew everybody there and was having a good old time. And uh um, they were playing a game in the room and, and, uh, invited me in and, uh, we became fast friends right around that time. They wanted us to do, uh, like a song and dance. The, all the floor was supposed to do like a song and dance. And Tim looked, Tim and I looked at each other and we're like, we do not want to any part of this. <laughs> and, uh, what was it? The Arsenio Hall show was like super popular at that time. And they had a kick in band. Uh, yeah. that band for Arsenio's hall shows, uh, his show was so funky. And so we asked if we could do a pit band, um, uh, in between, you know, play in between all the, all of the shows. And they were like, so excited that we took the initiative to do this extra stuff. Yeah. Literally, we were just like, we want out of the song and dance. <laughs> uh, but we formed this band and we had a blast doing it. And Tim looked at me and was like, man, if you come to Madison, you know, if you get the scholarship and you come to Madison, we should do a, we should form a band, uh, something like Tower of Power and Earth, Wind and Fire. And I was like, absolutely. That's, absolutely. that's yeah. my jam. And, uh, that was the, literally the, the seed of fat function. Cool. Very cool. 
awesome. You and Al, you and me kind of have like the opposite when we started out. My dad is also a drummer, and that's all I wanted to do is play drums, but he would not let me play drums. He said, I have a saxophone that I picked up years ago. Here's a saxophone. Learn how to play it. Take lessons. But yeah, so you want you wanted to play saxophone right away. I wanted to play drums right away. And I, I do play drums now, but saxophone was my, you know, that was my, my learning instrument right there. Cool. So, yep. Very cool. And I still play drums. I, I do play drums, uh, not as much, but uh, I play with an organ trio in uh, in Madison, uh, B3 Hammond organ trio led by uh, uh-huh. Mike uh, Sweet. Mike Camilleri, great B3 Hammond organ player, and Vince Jesse, who's the guitar player in Fat Function. So the three of us, right. and I, I play drums uh, in, in that group as well. What, what's the name of that group? Uh, Mike Camilleri organ trio. Okay, and then I also play with uh, a great New Orleans, you know, stride piano player named Johnny Chimes. Uh, been playing in his little trio at a New Orleans restaurant for many, many years. Sweet, very sweet. And then Tim, how how did you get to be playing an instrument and getting into Fat Function? I mean, we kind of heard how you guys got together, but how did you lead up to that? Well, when I met Al, I actually. I got that scholarship as a voice student. I wasn't. It wasn't for mu- for instrumental. Um, so I, I um I didn't grow up in a musical family. My family's not. I mean, my family loves music, but I'm the only musician in my family. Okay. I started learning how to play on a little keyboard by ear when I was in sixth grade. I, that's when I started plucking away at stuff, and then I just you know. I, I I played in bands in high school and I always loved to play, but the the scholarship thing was was um was a voice scholarship, um but that I only I only lasted a year doing that, I I ended up switching over to piano. Yeah. Once I got to once I got to school, it just it, I didn't see myself doing that, and then especially once. You know, we started getting the band going, and that's like a whole nother like that's a whole nother uh, avenue of things that all sorts of different things opened up. Right. Um, uh, there's one funny thing about the music clinic thing. Um, <laughs> I was so pissed that I had to actually go to that thing because um, right in the middle of music clinic. Uh, the girl, my girlfriend in high school at the time, her dad got me and three of my friends 10th row seats to go see Rush at Alpine Valley. Oh, wow. On the Roll of Bones tour. And I was a, I still am, but I was a huge Rush fan. And I, I couldn't go because I had to go. I even like went to the head of the music clinic and asked if I could just leave for the night. They wouldn't even let me do that. Really? Wow. I mean, I got over it. It's Yeah, right, right. But that was like uh, that's something I'll never forget. That summer, not being able to do that. Um, so obviously, when Neil Peart passed away, that was a that was pretty hard hit for you. Yeah, it was. I actually was able to do a pretty cool thing. A little off topic. I'll, I'll send you the video. I made a I made a pretty special tribute to him actually yeah. at, here at 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 work. Um, I wrote an arrangement at Time Standstill. Oh, nice. Actually. Right back there, you can see that frame. Mm-hmm. That's a letter from Alex Lifeson. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, so that was really cool. 
but you know, off topic. Right, right, right. So Tim's yeah, down. Really, I Tim's mean, downplaying this a lot. Uh, they put out this video, and the entire Rush community flipped out. Uh, it had hundreds of thousands of views within hours. Um, and he was getting pinged from everybody in, uh, from Getty said something to you, Alex Lifeson, eventually Neil Pert's wife. They all were in tears and choked up. It's a really cool video. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty special thing. Yeah, definitely. would love to see that. But no, the, the, my upbringing was, was basically, um, learning how to play by ear. Um, you know, I loved rock music. Um, grew up on a diet of Kiss and Van Halen and Rush and, you know, uh, classic type bands, ACDC. Um, I, I loved the Commodores, Earthman and Fire. And then in high school, that's when I really discovered Tower Power and more Earthman and Fire, J more James Brown. And then I really discovered jazz in high school. Um, I was kind of into fusion in like seventh and eighth grade. I really like, you know, the electric band, Chick Corea's electric band, right. Jeff Lorber. Um, then I realized Chick Corea played with Miles Davis. And then I learned about Miles and I learned about all those people that played with Miles. And I just snowballed. It's just amazing how it all branches out. Yeah. And then that's when I really, really started to get really interested in, I, f I found Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett and I, I knew obviously knew about chick so i got more interested in the piano um i, th I think the whole voice thing um I, you know i had a really great choir director at whitefish by high school named randy swiggum who you know like al has that same story we all have our we have these people that shaped kind of and he was that for me i didn't even know what a quarter note was when i got to high school he taught me how to you know he taught us all we sight read every day before rehearsals um and you know he taught us a lot about just how, you know, music isn't in a vacuum. Everything we were singing or learning about or listening to, it's it all. We we also learned about what was happening in the world and what was happening in these composers' lives and right. Um, so all of that kind of taught me about trying to dig deeper and be be more treat it more than just like notes. Yeah, exactly. Which, which when I switched over to playing, you know, obviously as a jazz musician and a songwriter and all that, that's you have to do that. Yeah, yeah, because notes on a page are just basically an outline, and you're supposed to interpret it in a certain way. Right, right. So let's kind of talk about the beginnings of Fat Function when you guys um, actually got really serious about it, and then started touring and getting gigs. So why don't you kind of start about the beginnings of Fat Function and when it got you guys to Japan and other countries and then places throughout the United States. So whoever wants to talk about that, go ahead. Tim's the Tim's the band resident historian. He is like, he... well, I I think Al Al can jump in, but there were a lot. There was a series of false starts at the beginning. So at at we kind of started as music students that we're looking for an outlet. We wanted to play, obviously Al and I remembered our connection, so we, we were the impetus for it. But we found people that kind of wanted to do the same thing. And for the beginning of it was uh, 
pretty much all music students. Um, and, you know, we were really into Maceo Parker and kind of the JBs. And so it was a lot of instrumental type stuff. And we'd rehearse in the big rehearsal room at the school of music on Tuesday nights. Um, and, uh, you know, just more than anything, I think we were just kind of learning how to play that way. And we were also discovering a whole new just social dynamic because, you know, a funny thing is, is on Tuesday nights, way down the hall, Mama Digdowns would be rehearsing. Okay. Because they only started a year before we did. Um, they started in 95. We started in 90, right around 96. Well, when we actually started. Um, Your first album came out that year too, right? Yeah. So we, we started kind of off and on in 95, but it just never, it didn't, it didn't really start really happening until uh, like early 96. So we would, we would, we would end up, we ended up, we were already friends with those guys, but we ended up becoming really good friends because every Tuesday night we'd know that we'd rehearse and then we'd go get wings. There you go. (laughs) You know, so that was a whole nother dynamic that, that was cool for us because, you know, we, it's just a different scene when you start playing in a band. Yep. So I think we'd also been in very structured you know, school-based ensembles. And this one right. was, there was no rules. There was no, right. you know, you rehearse at this time and you get a grade at the end of it. This was like, I I didn't grow up playing in garage bands or anything like that. So this was, you know, they came around with, uh, there was a Battle of the Bands poster at the Memorial Union in Madison. And Tim and I saw it and we're like, hey, we should try and get in this Battle of the Bands. Maybe this will be the 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 jump start for for whatever the band becomes right. and snuck in late night recorded the demo uh, submitted the tape uh and you know they were like well, what's the name of the band and I, we talked about it that night but we never really f- finalized what the name was and i remember yeah. somebody saying yeah, fat they- and somebody saying function and then yeah I, we had kind of we had kind of said it but it wasn't decided no and i walked out and the woman, she was like, hey, you didn't put your band name on the application. I was like, all right, well, uh, <laughs> fat function. And I just spelled it differently. And we we took second in that competition. Uh, but then right around that time was, you know, when you were like, we, were, we had too much fun doing this to let it go and it, for it to just be this one thing. And luckily around that time, there was this really cool restaurant bar around the corner called the, the Mango Grill. And I mean, she was, she was paying bands with all you could eat meatloaf sandwiches and, and all you could drink beer. The meatloaf sandwiches were damn good. Oh, yeah. uh, and so we kept coming back and, <laughs> uh, mama's was just starting to, just starting to, to take off. And, uh, they asked us to open up for them at the angelic brewing company. And so we did that. And then that was kind of, I think that was the kind of jump start that, got us thinking that hey this is this is a, a thing you know this isn't this right. isn't like a recital that somebody no. put on because of a class you know this we're, we're this is like a we're like in a band now you know this and this is yes. outside of school it has absolutely right. nothing to do with school right so like fall of 96 we were still kind of like 
we were figuring out our lineup still. We played a couple shows at the Club Tavern. We opened for Mama Dig Downs at the old East End. Okay. And then what Al is talking about, it was a pretty important moment for us. The Angelic Brewing Company was a definite like college like spot. And they had live music. And it was in February of 97. It was for like a fireman's benefit. We we played a show with Mama Dig Downs at this okay. thing. And it was it ended up being a place where we played once a month until the early 2000s. Right. So we really we really built our following there. Yeah, that college that college based following, that was the spot. Yeah, the Angelic, I'll never forget, we played New Year's Eve this, we did our CD release party there in October of 97. We did a New Year's Eve show there, 97 into 98. And uh, do you remember this? They had to come in the next day with like snow shovels to clean up the uh, clean up the mess. I think they're scraped. They scraped it off the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, that was a scene. There was a lot of good times there. What yeah, we were we were playing was, a lot of. Here we go. Was that the first one? No, the yeah. first one was self-titled. Oh, was it self-titled? Okay. I don't think you can get it anymore. Okay. So was here we go. Was that the 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 second one? Second. Okay. The there's there's an album called Soul Juice. The, the the band has basically two periods, and we could talk about this, but up until Tim left for grad school in 2003, and then when he came back from grad school from 2005 on. Um, and there was some personnel changes right at that point. And due to like copyrights and writer's credits and stuff like that, when we went back out on tour, we never reprinted that first album. What we did was we took songs off of Here We Go and that first album that were written by Tim and I. And yeah. we m- made a new album that's like the same music, but it's called Soul Juice. Okay. So let's take a listen off of that Soul Juice album. Here is... Shake by Fat Function.
So, I mean, yeah, that first, the first album, we listen to it now and it's kind of comical because none of us had really ever been, had you been in a recording studio before that, Tim? I mean, yeah, but not to, not to make a, I mean, just for, for bullshit. Like this was, we, I'll never forget the first time we went into the studio like the first thing we're at, that we were asked, like, do you want to use a click? And we're like, no, 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 no way, you know. And then like, then we ended up using a click, and we was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. But you know, there was like, <laughs> the only overdubs that were done on the record were our vocals and some solos. Everything else was just us knock, like, knocking stuff out, and the horns overdubbed as well. But because we we also um, we had was, no money. <laughs> Right? So you're like, no, and I got to get in yeah. here. I got to get it done. Come on, one take. Why yeah, are you right, making mistakes? Yeah. Come on, we're co- this is costing us money. So yeah, I mean, so we didn't really, we didn't know anything about production or. Right. Was that done to tape or was it ADAT at that time? We couldn't afford tape as analog tape is expensive. Yes, it is. It's like 20 years ago, it was like 150 a reel. And now it's like over $300 a reel. So it's like crazy. I got rid of my two inch machine like two or three years ago. So I had a 16-track 2-inch for a long time in my recording studio. What did you guys learn during that first that first true album? I know for me, it was the first time I was I heard I listened back to myself. I mean, obviously, you know, when you go into recording studio, you got nice mics. You're yeah. trying to get some separation. So when you hear the playback of just your track muted, it was a, a kind of a really scary moment where you get a chance to like really dissect your playing and i'd never i'd never done that before Uh, everything that i had done had been live in the room if i heard any recordings it was like my dad holding a crappy mic you know plugged into a cassette player at a gig sitting in the back of a theater like what what is that right no but to hear yourself crystal clear um, I think that for me is when a, a, a two two lights went on. One was how to record yourself and uh, uh, break down your own sound and be like, this isn't not what I want to sound like. This is not how I want to perform on tape. Uh, and it opens up that door to like really self analyze your own sound. Right. Uh, and then the second light that went off was all of this cool stuff that I'm hearing Earth, Wind and Fire do or Maceo Parker or Tower of Power or any of the stuff that was on pop radio sounds way better <laughs> than, than what I'm recording right now. Obviously, maybe some of that is do, is has to do with, uh, you know, my playing, which I'm a young player. I'm hopefully, hopefully going to get better. But it opened up this light of production and this whole new world of you know, mic placements, techniques, overdubs, you know, like I I didn't even, I didn't know what an overdub was the first time we went into the studio. Never even, I had never thought about music in that way. And, Mm -hmm. um, we made our first album, you know, on tape, on an ADAT tape in a studio down in a basement. And then in between our first and second album is when I started getting into, you know, what can I record on my own computer? And you, you, you the, buy your first interface that allows you to hook up a mic to, into a desktop computer. Computer desktop right. computers at that time were just getting fast enough to record audio, and that's mm-hmm. when my, you know, brain for production and all of that stuff just kind of exploded. 
cool. Very cool. That that from that was that first album, that was my big thing that I that how it changed my life. I'm sure Tim's got some of the same stuff and maybe some different stuff. Um yeah, I think uh, a lot of what Al hit on. You know, the thing about that first record, I mean, I'll always you know, it's our first album, so I'll always have a bit of a nostalgia for it because I, I remember the time more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for for all of the, you know, uh, what it was lacking, you know, what it wasn't lacking was certainly like spirit and, uh, you know, a lot of what we still do now was kind of planted, you know, writing, writing, um you know, complex arrangements and uh, kind of adventurous song forms. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, even though it wasn't, it was, it was very, like, uh, rough around the edges. But the thing about that first album, um, it's, like, sounds very narrow to me just because there's no... Okay, we, okay. There's, nothing was really paid attention to in terms of place placing things in the spectrum and... So the thing I really, uh, when we did the second album, and it, we went, you know, we went overboard with it. Overproduced? Is that what you're saying? Well, we just, we really realized, like, oh, Let's we can... double everything! We can double guitars, <laughs> you know, we can double guitars, we can thicken the vocals up. So when if you listen to those, the, the difference between those first two albums is very, it's a very different. Yeah. But... You know, it's it that also was the next we we learned how to we learned how to, you know, layer vocals, we learned how to double vocals, you know, we learned how we could create vocal pads by doubling stuff. We learned how to thicken the guitars and we paid a lot more attention to getting better sound. Yeah. P- playing better takes. We did everything individually. We learned about the fact that we don't all have to play together. Not that they, that we were rich, but we also had by that time, we had yeah. we had established the band and it was gigging regularly, so we had an income. So mm-hmm. studio time was, you know, there was more time. We spent a lot of time there. Yeah, was it the same place as your first album compared to your second album? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where'd you guys record at? Sleepless nights. Yeah, which is now called Megatone. And who was the the engineer for that? Well, it was a bunch of different engineers, and a lot of those guys are still good friends of ours. Because we le- we learned a lot from them, and I think they learned stuff from us too. Actually, yeah. The father figure of that studio is a guy named John Mocknick, who is uh, now out of the business. But he was he was a great guy, great studio owner, a great teacher. Not in the sense that like, he was he had lessons or anything like that. But those guys, he 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 taught those guys a lot. And there's a, a, a basically a tree of guys that have now gone on and uh, started some of the most successful studios in Madison. Uh, and they, they came from John, the John Mocknick tree. Um, Jake Johnson owns Paradigm. Uh, Paul Schluter owns Megatone, which is in the, the old building. And then uh, as we s- progress and talk more about Fat Function, we've uh, moved to, uh, we, we use a studio called DNA, uh, which is Mark Whitcomb, who is uh, all of these, all of those guys worked on the first Fat Function al- album uh, at different times because we were just taking whatever time was available late at night for you right. know 
as cheap as possible. We'd book that right. engineer. Well, and what Mocknick would do was, um, Mocknick always recorded the drums. He was the drum guy. Uh, uh, it was either Ralph, who I don't know what happened to him, or Wit recorded all the bass because because yeah. Mark Wit comes a bass player. Jake recorded all the vocals mostly and all the get all the keyboards. Um, and Schluter did all the guitars. Um, so they were really excited that we got really into this, like wanting to actually like produce more because then they, they got into it too. Right. Paul actually, I don't know if if you've ever heard of the band last crack. No. Okay. Okay. But Paul, you know, Paul's actually pretty well known, uh, just outside of Madison, I think, because he's been in some hard rock bands that have actually been. They were they were signed. Yeah. They were Last not... Crack did a major European tour in the mid in the early nineties. Okay. Um, and then they just it just kind of fell apart. But yeah. you know, it's he that's that would be a very interesting guy actually. Paul would be an interesting guy to talk to. Yeah. But yeah, so I think. I think we're both kind of saying the same thing. We just learn more about like, oh, the guitar could go over here and the keyboard could go over there. It doesn't right. all have to kind of be, it's not just like, it's not whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the first album kind of sounds like whatever. Right. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here we go. Definitely that time period in terms of us playing out. Um, Especially in Madison and in you know parts of Wisconsin, we definitely like our popularity had elevated it by that point. I mean, we right. were a one sold out night at the Angelic, and then the next night we'd play a sold out night at another big club called the Regent Street Retreat. Like so, it was, it was like in Madison's not a very big town, so like we were doing this every month. Yeah. Um. So like it was kind of a things were rolling um so from like 99 to i don't know about to basically till when i moved to new york i don't think we ever had a show that wasn't packed i mean al i'm 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 seeming to remember when we started playing at luther's blues which was a really big place we all like it was just kind of like a thing at that point it just our shows were pretty much always successful uh, in Madison, you know, we, we had definitely established ourselves. And then uh, it was something that we all started taking more seriously. Um, in fact, we had our, our two trumpet players on the first album were also in Mama Digdown's uh, brass band. And we kind of came to this point where we, you know, Mama was playing every weekend and we wanted to start playing every weekend. And it, it wasn't a bad thing, but we kind of had to go to those two trumpet players and be like, hey, you got to pick one or the other, knowing full well that they were going to probably pick Mamas because Mamas was gigging all the time. But it, yeah. it was just something that we had to do. Otherwise, we were never going to be able to play because our both of our trumpet players were not available. Gotcha. Uh, so it was a it was a tough call for us. Um, but we had to kind of, you know, have that, that discussion one day. And of course they, they went with mamas because mamas was playing all the time. But what it did do is it also connected us with John Shipper, uh, uh, who has been with us since, you know, 1999. 
Uh, he just wasn't on the fir very first album. That was the, the, the only thing that he didn't do. Um, but an incredible, incredible lead trumpet player. And he also was with us at that summer music clinic. So uh, he actually dates back to, the, again, when the seed was planted for right. summer music clinic. Um, and um, we had a slightly different horn lineup for the, uh, the first portion of the band. This is before uh, Tim left for New York. Uh, than we do since Tim came back. We slimmed it down, uh, you know, a, a little bit. But, um, yeah, the, the horn section, the core of the horn section is, has been John Shipper on lead trumpet, myself, uh, and Courtney uh, Larson right. on trombone. Yeah, and uh, I think we, also what you were asking, we were, we were booking our own gigs. It would be, I, I would book a gig, uh, Al would book something. Our our baseball bass player Rob, he did a lot of booking. Like Rob was actually the guy that got us into the House of Blues for the first time. Okay, wasn't that that was Lee Feynman? That was Lee Feynman. But Rob 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 made the contact initially. Found the name, but then he gave it to Lee. Yeah, <laughs> he just annoyed the <laughs> yeah. Crap that's right, Lee Lee Feynman. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Lee. Yeah, and we we um we just kind of did things that way. Again, we were still starting to take it seriously but and then we got a booking agent well if you're, Simon. If, if you're talking about taking it seriously that first house of blues gig that we did uh we had this guy who was acting as our we did was he our agent i mean he was our friend he was a like, friend of ours who wanted like, to be well, our should, manager if we're gonna be serious you should have an agent so you got a friend that pretends to be your agent but he yeah. was he did he he kept he mailed like 42 press packs to the house of blues and wow. finally i think it was the day before the gig whatever a band was going to open for maceo parker bailed and we got the call and it was last minute like do you guys want to open for maceo parker at the house of blues in chicago wow. the gig is tomorrow and so we went down there and we opened up for maceo and our gig was our set was whatever and then they gave us they gave us seats in the opera box on the side on the side of the stage to watch Maceo's show, and we sat there and went to school for three hours. Uh, it, that yeah. was the night that the band changed. That yeah, was for sure. The night that Fat Function changed. Seeing that man, we all destroy we all the place for three hours. Yeah. Wow. And we all we also we also got to see just like where we could arrive at at some point. Yeah. That whole like wow, that'd be cool if you know we could roll into a house of blues in Chicago and all those people would come and it's like all sorts of things you're learning about just yeah. And we did well. Um, we like, you know, like I talk about it being this life changing event. We did well. Like, like we the band killed it. They invited us back. What was it? couple weeks month later to open up for tower of power which was these oh, guys wow. were our idols so it's not like we stunk and then right. yeah and then our... about a few months after that we opened for war so we were there like three times but it was that maceo gig man where we yeah we, we got in the van and we're sitting just started writing down stuff like we're gonna do this we're gonna do that yeah. we're gonna wear <laughs> we're gonna wear suits <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we're gonna look good you know like yeah. We learned a lot from that show. And that, that's great. I mean, those are the experiences that you would need to help elevate because otherwise you don't know where you need to go if you don't see it. Yeah, and then at that point, too, 
we started definitely realizing uh i think that you know how this is you're 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 into your thing and you're popular and but then you also um uh, another very important show that we um that we did that also had a huge impact on our development was we opened for a band in Minneapolis called Greasy Meal, who was essentially most of Prince's ex-musicians oh, okay. or okay. or musicians that are still were still affiliated with him loosely or involved with him and and then a couple other other musicians, but um, that was another like whoa like now we know we need we need to we need to up this you know so then we realized like okay now we really we checked out their records we really like their records um really well produced albums so then we started learning more about like production and singing better and songwriting and better better lyrics better you know better everything we started really focusing more on writing lyrics that you know weren't an afterthought okay okay um because it was very much write the music and then we got to come up with some lyrics now it was a little more like okay now we got to think about this a little more and um so that all those experiences with greasy mail and the house of blues stuff when we went to do our third album we really like i think we learned we learned lessons and we applied them. Right. You know, every right. every album every album's a learning experience. Yeah, it's a snapshot. Yeah. And the so third, that the third album was which what was the title of that one? It's originally called Higher, but then that's the album that got us to Japan. Okay. And it be it got re released through um Ben Ben and Leo Sidron's label called was it Nardis? It was Nardis. And it was that then we we changed the album title to You and Me. Okay. Um, but that, that, that album, I'll never forget, you know, Leo Sidron is one of my best friends. He's one of Al's really good friends. His father, Ben is a legendary musician and a producer and, you know, they live in Madison. They lived in Madison. Ben still does. And, um, I'll never forget Al. You remember we were so happy with that first album and we went to their house and we were in Ben's music room. And and the thing is, Ben listened. He was a he was a fan of us. He was he really wanted to he wanted us to succeed. And I'll never forget we played him some tracks from that album, and he's like, "Yeah, this this would be a good demo to get some gigs." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he, he was he was he was being honest. Yeah. You know, like oh, yeah. And he's totally right. And then we I played him the second one, and it was you know, you know they. Same thing is like a lot, lot of stuff going on, you know. But I'll never forget when I, I played. The rough mix of Higher for Leo because we had our Wednesday night King Club gig, and Leo and I always used to play stuff for each other. And I, it was the we had just done the that was the first song we mixed with John. Okay. And I played that for Leo. And he was like, "You guys, you you." You you basically like you found your you found your voice basically, and um, Ben said the same thing. So to me, it meant a lot when when I play this for for Ben and and you they both the, you, Al you know they they loved that third record they 
and they kind of helped us get it out to let maybe some people hear it that wouldn't have heard it otherwise. Right. Yeah. Leo got in a car accident listening to Rockstar. What was that? Leo got in a car accident listening to Rockstar. Oh man. You know He was he was he was listening to it and he sideswiped a uh, light pole. Oh. <laughs> you don't you you have all these backstories that I don't have, so. <laughs> like I said, you're the you're the you're the historian. And the third album, it's it's just like here we go is too much like of the overdubs and all that. Yeah. The third album, obviously, because of the time, Al, right? Two Against Nature came out around that time, and we wanted the album to be perfect. Al, remember, remember when we sat in the studio that one night and we ended up editing all of the kick, all of the kicks and bass. We we literally lined up every single kick and every single bass note. Wow. But then once we did it. And we listened to the other tracks that didn't do it. We were like, oh, shit. <laughs> we have to do this for everything. We edited the entire album. Wow. And of course, you know, it's too perfect. But at the time, that's what people were doing. So it's, it's very clean sounding. Very kind of pristine sounding. Right. Um, and that was another learning experience. Like, well, maybe we don't have to go that far with that. You know, like... Right. Um, but... That's the beauty of making records. Everyone's a, a different learning experience for sure. Let's take a listen to the title track. So here is Fat Function with the song. Here we go. Check this out. On the fat tracks that hit you in your soul, you've all been told time and time again. We're laying it on the line with the funky rhyme and the fat stack of horns you can hear for mine. Thank God for the one four, get you on the dance floor, kicking the funky hip hop. Man, we in the sweat box, all up in your nation. Take your place in line and find you're listening to the one of a kind. Here we go. From the big cheek. He told me that he gave me five dollars just to make it all holler and slam till you can't breathe. We came at the crowd with the big sound, and it weighs at least five thousand pounds of folk. Closing up the show with the slam dunk, and the bartenders making sure you go home drunk. Up your last call, everybody on the dance floor. It's your last chance to hit it with the hardcore. Maceo, won't you blow your horn? He's smoking the people from dusk to dawn. Speaking in the back door, begging us for one more. Working hard to give them what they paid for. Never fear the functions here. Kicking in the high gear, dropping you the bomb of the year. Here we go.
banging it on the line with the funky rhyme and the fat stack of horns you can hear for miles. Thank God for the what for, get you on the dance floor. King of the fucking hip hop, man, we in the sweat box all up in your nation. Take your place in line and find you listening to the one of a kind. Here we go. So you guys are making a new album right now? Well, there's one more album after that one. Okay. Well, there's technically two, but one is a live album. Talk about a little bit of history on that one. So Tim, uh, after we came out with You and Me, uh, Tim just, Tim went to grad school at Manhattan Music, School of Music. Uh, right before he went, Ben and Leo Sidron had approached us about uh, licensing You and Me and putting it out on this uh, on this record label. And at that time, we, we were like having internal band discussions like, is this the end of the band? Uh, should we shut it down? Should we replace Tim and keep going? My friendship uh, uh, and my working uh, relationship with Tim was too strong to ever like have somebody else come in. So I let everybody else in the band know that I wasn't real, really interested in continuing if Tim wasn't going to do it. Right. Uh, ben and Leo approached us about licensing this album. Uh, we were basically like, sure, why not? We're not doing anything with it. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Kind of slung, uh, slung together a quick contract for them to license and and produce the album. And Tim runs off to New York to get his uh, his masters. And uh, while he's there, this 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 uh, record company that had licensed six albums of Ben and Leo's. Uh, they basically stole a bunch of money, <laughs> so none of us oh. ever got paid. But the side pro, uh, the side uh, benefit was they started shipping the album to Japan. Somehow, back when there was record stores, the Tower Records in Japan, yeah, uh, whoever was managing the floor, uh, the, the 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 popular music floor, came across our album and fell in love with it and then put it in the demo bins on the end of the aisle. This, this is the story that we've been told anyways. Uh, they put it in the demo bin at the end of the aisle. And if you remember music stores, when you would go put the headphones on and there was like six tracks that you can listen to. Yeah. So they put Fat Function in this demo bin and apparently that was enough to make this thing start selling like hotcakes. Uh, again, we have saw none of that money because it was uh, associated with this this record label that ne never paid anybody, but uh, it got the attention of some uh, Japanese record execs. And so we were contacted uh, by a, a record label in Japan about licensing the album directly instead of them selling it as an import. Uh, and they ended up bringing, uh, wanting to bring us to Japan uh, and so this was all happening while Tim was, you know, just finishing up his grad school and Tim and I talked and we we're like, well, listen, man, we're not getting any younger. And the, all those years when we were trying to be on the road to, we, we were trying to get to this point, right. it'd be foolish to like, let this opportunity go by. So we kind of posed the question to the rest of the band, like, how do you guys feel not being 18, but quitting all of your jobs and hopping in a van? <laughs> and, and going going around the country playing gigs and uh most of the band said yes there was a couple guys that could couldn't do it and so 
we decided to try and replace them. And Tim got done, graduated with his master's, uh, came back to Madison, and we hopped in the van and started touring around the country. Uh, and we did that for a year and a half, and it culminated with a, uh, a trip to Japan, which was uh, obviously just amazing for us. Uh, you know, as funny, I had friends that would never wanted to pay the cover to come see the band in Madison and they'd sneak in through the kitchen and there's people paying $90 to come see us in Japan. And I was like, wow. Yeah, it was, it was surreal. Since we are talking about the album, you and me, let's play the final track off of it. So here is fat function with stand up.
nice job, guys. So let's talk about Japan. Kind of give the the listeners a little insight of playing in Japan. Like, what new things did were you experiencing when you were playing in Japan? Um, well, for us, I mean, in terms of our performance, it was nothing different, really. But、uh, it was everything else that was different. It was,、uh, you know. Showing up at the airport to a guy with a white placard that says "Fat Function" like a limo driver, like that was like the first thing of like, okay, this is this is a little different.、Uh, it was staying in really nice hotel hotels,、um, getting a per diem,、uh, getting a getting an email asking us what equipment we'd like. And then showing up at the gig, and all the equipment we wanted was there, and it was set up. Nice.、Um, like thirty people running around the venue, like tending to what the band needs. I mean, you go play a gig in like Flagstaff, Arizona, on a Tuesday night. You're dog shit. Like, it's not how it is in Japan. No.、Um, In fact, when we got back from Japan and did have some of those dog shit gigs, the slogan was "just like Japan." <laughs> but no, it was. But the biggest thing, though, besides all that, it was, and this is how it did change our performances. It was the utter,、um, like, just attention the audience gave us. Yeah. In what way? Well, singing singing lyrics to our songs,、uh, just like. It really hit us like, wow, these people are really happy that we're here. This isn't just like a showing up at a club and you're trying to win an audience over. Like, right? When we played our first gig,、um, and we were at the Cotton Club, and I remember leaving the hotel. We did sound check, went to the hotel. And I remember getting to the venue, and I was just like, "I wonder how many people are going to be here." Like, because you know, when you travel around and you tour and you do this stuff, like you very you get very used to the like whack-a-mole. Like, you you know you 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 come into the venue for the gig, and you you're opening that door, and what you see could either be super like awesome. Or it could be like four people are there, right, 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 and you're like, oh my god, now it's we gotta work. Like we really gotta work now, you know. Yeah. So I'll never forget opening that door, and it was just like packed. <laughs> <laughs> and and that all the gigs were like that, and it was like, wow. I th- I think some of it is too. These like, people are genuinely. So we were. We were. They're genuine.、Yeah, they were genuinely happy yeah, that we were there. When we played in Madison, obviously Madison was our hometown. We had done our, we had done the grunt work and gotten to the point where when we played a venue, it was going to be filled with people, and they were there to see us. And that one, that one, those did. Those were super fun. It didn't feel like work, right? And when we decided, when we made the conscious decision to go on the road and tour, you know, you we'd leave Madison for. Th- Three weeks, you know. I think the the one, worst one we had was twenty two gigs in twenty one days.、Wow. We had a couple days off, and then a couple of those days were doubles. And 
But when you leave Madison, and we knew this, right? We were going on the road to build audiences in these new cities. And some of the cities we would hit multiple times and we would start to see the fruits of our labor. But man, when you go play this new city for the first time and the curtain opens, if there was a curtain, probably not. When you walk out on the on the stage, you know, there's people in the audience like, impress me it's the worst. you know their arms are crossed they're like i paid eight dollars to get in here you guys better be worth it you know and so you got it and we were fairly successful all of those all those, those years that we did it by the time the third or the fourth song would come around the people would start clapping I'm like man these boys are good you know um but you know when we were in japan we we're like we we're in a different continent right yeah. and like tim says man you open up that door and it was like whoa, this isn't going to be work tonight. This is, this is going to be fun. Yeah. How, how is, how did this happen? <laughs> and how can we do this in other places? Cause I think the first gig after we came back from Japan was at that pizza joint in Omaha, Nebraska. And we're like 20 minutes into the gig. And I looked over at Tim and I'm like, what are we doing wrong in this country? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and kind of the piggyback on that, what do you think we are doing wrong in this country compared to like your experience in Japan? What do you think needs to happen to get live original music more attention that from bands that aren't, you know, on the limelight? Well, even nowadays, it's even different now just because I don't know. I just look at even looking at Madison. I don't live there anymore, but I know Al can back me up because we talked about this. We used to do shows like at the Angelic, let's say, or the Regent Street Retreat or wherever, and there would be a line, like not halfway down the block, like a full city block, okay. there would be a line. And that would happen. There were other bands. It's, it wasn't just us. There were other bands that gained followings, maybe not quite that much, but big followings. I don't think there's a band in Madison that could do that now. Is there? I don't know. I, th I just think the music industry, the the type of music is different. Like when we went through bands, uh, throwing up the air quotes, right? Bands were popular. Uh, uh, Dave Matthews band, the, uh, they're like the jam band thing was a scene and we weren't too far off of, you know, what stuff was on the yeah. radio. Uh, yeah. hip hop, like a, like the crossover hip hop with real instruments, the yeah. roots, yeah. you know, like yeah. that was, that was all happening at the time. So we were really close. The product that we were putting out anyways was really close to the hip stuff that was on the radio. Uh, I mean, I cruise past Z104, which is like the popular station, but that like any, the stuff that you hear on the radio now is unreproducible by, and I'll throw it up again with the air quotes bands, yeah. like, you know, so it's, it, the pop the popular music of the time right now is not something that you go to the high noon saloon yeah to yeah. To, to see so i i and it, it i don't know i i mean granted i'm 45 now so i'm not you know 21 ha hanging out at the bars down on state street but like i'm also connected in the music scene and i don't know of any air quote bands that you know like back at that time and, and it wasn't just us right. you know it was smoking with right. superman it was mama dig a brass band come on mama dig down's brass band they were consistently putting 500 people in a room uh, that's uh, it's just not yeah, happening just not anymore. anymore 
I, I think part of it too is um a lot of a lot of local music, not just in Madison, it's all been like kind of conglomerated a little bit. I mean, I don't know a lot about what's going on in Madison now, but I, what I've been told, and that there's there's essentially what one or two companies that run all the venues in Madison. Is there really even such thing as a? I mean, this is not even just in local venues. I mean, just there are. It's it's what kind of what happened to the radio stations, right? They're like three companies that own all the radio stations or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's happening with music promotion. Live Nation, you know. Right. And Live Nation just doesn't represent U2 now and Madonna. Yeah. Represent yeah. like a club in Tempe, Arizona. So it's like, th- that's going to change the landscape of how how bands can grow right so basically it's the monopolization of bigger venues getting making the live music scene what it is now yeah and i think you know al we talk about this a lot and and zach you actually mentioned it too i would have i would love to go back in time to when we were doing that full-time touring yeah i would love to have had social media back then to just to see what might have come of it? Yeah. Because when we were in Japan, the only the only record of us being in Japan is a, a mini disc recording that I made and one video of the first song we played in Tokyo, and it's probably at you know, two forty frames per second. Yeah. The only video record of that show. I just, it's always wonder, like, if now every, Al, you know, imagine every person in that audience would have had a cell phone. Yeah. And they would have been filming it. So I always think about stuff like that. Like, you know, it would have been interesting to see. It it might not have made any difference, but, um, I mean, Zach, too, you know, we come from the time where if we wanted to get people to our shows, we, we made a postcard and put it in the mail. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was a reality. Even even that's when we were touring full time the idea of an email list that was like just starting to happen. Right. Um which is interesting to me because you'd think live music as a whole would be further along but it's funny it doesn't seem to have really moved the needle all that much yeah it is interesting and sometimes i think with everybody nowadays taking their phones out at live concerts are you even really enjoying the experience are you just you know are you just filming it and are you actually gonna watch that video ever and do you remember that concert or do you just remember yourself filming it and seeing a crowd of people doing exactly the same thing you are yeah, now there's like that venue, the Sylvie, right? So that place gets a lot of big name folks, and they get really big crowds. But a lot of those people that go to those shows, I don't think they would be caught dead going to the High Noon Saloon. Uh, it depends. At in Madison, it, it is changing. Um, there is there is a good uh, amount of crossover. That's good. So let's talk about your your latest project. There's a 
there's a actually a big a chunk bit. of the story though that we're we're kind of skipping over. I, I don't know if I can try and give it to you as quickly as possible. So after we came back from Japan, uh, you know, it was kind of an interesting time for for us. We were kind of getting done with touring, uh, being in the van. Um, at that time, I was um, getting engaged to uh, my my fiance was her name was Kate. Uh, we got engaged a week after she got engaged, she was diagnosed with uh, stage four colon cancer. Um, and so I realized that with my wife having to go through cancer, probably being a road musician, wasn't a good choice of profession, uh, for me. So, uh, and, and it seemed like everybody else in the band was kind of done with being in the van at that time. So yeah. What year was this? This was 2006. And so we decided to shut it down. Um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of people went back to work. Uh, Fat Function did not play a gig, uh, in between 2006 and 2009. Uh, Kate had, uh, fought great as with, with as much grace as I've ever seen anybody, uh, battle, uh, a, a terminal disease like that. She ended up losing her battle, uh, in 2009. Uh, one of her last wishes was to, uh, she was a very much, uh, not there's no crying in baseball kind of girl so she didn't want anybody to be too sad i wanted everybody to party and celebrate her life and uh one of the things that she uh that helped drive her fight was the research um cancer research and so she wanted to have a benefit and take all of the money and donate it to the uw carbone cancer center um and so to fulfill that wish uh everybody in the band and a bunch of kate's friends uh, came together and we fired the band up for uh, the, our first show in three years, which was uh, uh, Funk Out Cancer. It was the first year okay. that we did it. Uh, and it kind of started this current phase uh, that we are currently in uh, with Fat Function with a, a, a slightly different horn section, core members of John Shipper on lead trumpet, Courtney Larson on uh on trombone and myself on saxophone. And then we added our longtime uh, friend, Jimmy Doherty on trumpet. And so this is the four piece horn section with two trumpets, trombone and saxophone. Um, and uh, we brought back our original guitar player, Vince, who was in the, the beginnings of the band. He didn't go on tour with us in uh, 2005, 2006, but he came back. Um, we added our very good friend, Nick Moran on bass. Uh, and then of course the rhythm section of Tim, uh, on keys and vocals, uh, Darvante, uh, turbo is his nickname, Darvante Murray, uh, our drummer and Polly Ryan are percussionists. So, uh, and so starting in 2009, we've been doing this, uh, kind of one or two gigs per year. Uh, every other year we do a uh, funk out cancer and we've donated over $250,000 over the wow. six events to, uh, the UW Carbone Cancer Center. Um, when Kate passed, uh, it was in May of 2009. Tim was teaching at the University of Toledo. He came back to Madison for that summer and lived with me in the house. And we pounded uh, working on this new album, uh, which we released in uh, 2012, I think, um, called Real Life 2011 real life, high fidelity. Um, and, uh, so that came out in 2011. It got us a return trip to Japan. So we got to go back to Japan again, uh, in 2012. 
I'd like to just take a moment and point everyone to the website for Funk Out Cancer, and it is funkoutcancer.com. I will also have that in the notes. You can read about the event, which started on November 20th, 2009. This is held at the Orpheum Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. They're connected with the Carbine Cancer Center, which is at the University of Wisconsin, and they are committed to finding the best ways to detect, prevent, diagnose, and treat cancer. Donations to Funk Out Cancer will go directly to the Paul P. Carbone Cancer Center Fund, which is funding innovative research to help find the cure for cancer. For anyone that's interested in finding out more, please go to funkoutcancer.com. Once again, the website will be in the description. All right, let's get back to the interview with Al and Tim of Fat Function. This album also was around the beginnings of Spotify. Um, So we, since the beginnings of the band, we've embraced new digital technologies, uh, CD Baby, um, you know, all of these digital platforms, whenever they come out, we just sign up for them. You know, try to read the fine print, but we just sign up for them. I, we were yeah. one of, on iTunes. CD Baby, we were, iTunes. we were one of CD Baby's wow. very first clients. Yeah. And so we threw our stuff up on Spotify. And, and funny enough, it's at this time that the band is kind of drawing back. We're not going on the road. We're, you know, we're playing one or two gigs a year. One of them is a benefit. So we're not, we're not even getting paid. Um, and somehow stuff starts taking off on Spotify. Like we have over 12 million, <laughs> 12 million views. I, I don't, wow. There can't be another band that doesn't tour or plays one or two gigs a year that has his, all the streams and, and 70,000 monthly listeners. Um, it's, so it's, 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 as soon as we stopped trying to, to is, is when things started to happen for the band. So, uh, we get, well, this is what's interesting. Full circle. We opened for Maceo. We have more monthly listeners on Spotify oh, yeah. than Maceo Parker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now we're playing. <laughs> you start playing that game, right? You know, but it's like, it's, it's but hilarious. it's just it's interesting. Just like, as yeah. as we stopped trying is when things started happening. You know, uh, on, on this kind of global scale, we just found out that uh, the 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 late night TV show, like basically like the late night with Stephen Colbert of Santiago in the country of Chile, they okay. use our song. Uh, as their like theme song, so I, I just happened to type in Fat Function into into Wikipedia one day, and the first page that came back was in all in Spanish. And I'm like, Tim, what is this? And we <laughs> ran it through the translator, and and I was like, what? and so we then we popped on YouTube and started watching these episode episodes, and sure enough, you know, there's it's the theme song for these shows. Um, and hundreds was, of videos of yeah. bands yeah. covering our songs on YouTube now. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we got asked to, we were supposed to be in uh, Australia this October uh, to play this music festival. That We'd I be mean, leaving was, next week. How, how, did, how did Australia hear about us? I have no right. idea, right? But they uh, they uh, asked us to come over there, but obviously because of COVID, we couldn't go. Yeah. They're going to uh, return, ask us to do it again next year. And I think the coolest honor that we got this year uh, from all of this, this, this work that we've done in this second phase of the band was we got asked by, uh, the varsity band, the UW varsity band to be the featured, their featured musical guest at their big show in the Cole center. So yeah, I saw that in April, we should have been playing in a, in an arena, uh, for three nights. They would have had us on a stage in front of the band and featured. Yeah. And so it was like this really cool honor as two, you know, UW alumni, 
of all the you know nights we spent in the practice room and uh, to to be kind of acknowledged for uh, our our contributions to to music uh, at least coming out of the and representing the University of Wisconsin Madison that was a really cool honor and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it next year but uh, um, these are all of the things that kind of then ended up happening. Uh, uh, in that, that second half, which brings us to now, which I think we've embraced the, uh, hopefully it turns out like, you know, uh, the Donald Becker, uh, the Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, Steely Dan method, which was the just, you know, it's a, it's a writing vessel for us, uh, yeah. to write and arrange and produce, uh, yeah. some more music, even though we're not going to hop in the van anytime soon and go travel around the country. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and you asked about how we recorded. I think we'll still, I mean, even if we're writing like this, um, we've written, we'll, we've been talking about going away for a while, write together, just go, but we'll, we'll record it still, you know, because pe- most everybody's, every, pretty much everybody lives in Madison except for Turbo is in Chicago. So we'll still, record it if we want to record people together or get a you know we can do all it's not like we're all just going to be doing it remotely okay but but the thing about this is you know uh i was telling al i just found an old video um i have a video i still need to send it to you al i've compiled a little video i have i set up a camera i guess it's him and i writing horn parts for one of our tunes on our last album via uh via phone call and uh it worked just fine. Yeah, we, we I was used, on my Pro Tools rig. The he, Skype at the time, the Zoom, yeah, the Skype, the Zoom of 2010. You know, yeah, but yeah. We, we we that album that came out in 2011. There's a good number of uh, portions of those songs that we wrote doing exactly this. You know, 10 years ago, right? That's right. 10 years ago, and we were writing horn parts. Both had Pro Tools open. You know, if I had an idea for a horn part, I'd record it. And uh, we had a FTP, remember? We had an yeah. FTP site and I would upload the file for it. And yeah. you know, a couple seconds later at ping, you'd bring it back into your, you know, we'd set like a sync point and that's how we right. were transferring files back and forth. Yeah. And then whatever we wrote, uh, um, then I, we'd finalize the part, you know, Al, he would, <laughs> for trumpet parts, he'd, He'd he'd play the, play it on the alto and then just bring it up an octave with a with an effect just because all we care about is the notes we're not trying to and then I would just go and I just write the horn parts out and then they I'd send them the horn parts and then they'd just go to Al's and then they'd record the actual horn parts. Cool. So it really it really worked out really well. Um, um, it it worked almost. I mean, you know the thing is with the way we write is we like writing together and we come up with some good stuff together, but we call it like doing homework. Right. Right. Like sometimes it's good to like, okay, I think we got something going here. Us sitting here, like trying to, it's probably like diminishing returns. So why don't we go to our corners and, (laughs) and, and mess around with it and then let's come back and see what we have. And, and, you know that that's part of what you learn about when you collaborate with somebody. Yeah. Is. yeah. Whereas in the early days, it was just like you would literally come in with a tune fully, like you have all the you have all the parts done. You have so essentially whoever wrote the tune that was their tune, they sung on it. 
You know, that was kind of how it was. Yeah, yeah. But now it's, you know, him and I are writing everything. So um, it's it's even even when we go to our corners to do our homework, you know, we're still collaborating because we're whatever we're doing our homework on was somebody planted that seed, you know. Right, right. So it's it's good. I think uh, having a partner like that's cool. I would say rare for a lot of people to have a friendship like that, that you can collaborate creatively and also just be, you know, just friends. Well, we're friends first. Right. That's and, important. And we've seen and done things together. <laughs> we, we <laughs> like, we constantly talk about like stuff that has, that has happened to us on the road. Like if I tried to explain it to you, I could, we couldn't. Right. But we will be, like crying until our gray haired days about some of the stuff, <laughs> just uh, unbelievable stuff. Yeah. That, Very cool. you know, like, like, like it's kind of sad, like probably a lot of other friendships didn't, don't get, don't get that stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. No. And Zach, you know, this, we talked about it, uh, a bond of being in a band. There's, there's nothing like it. Right. I mean, it, I mean, in many ways, you know, I went through basic training for the army band here. Yeah. Um, you can't make that shit up, <laughs> the stuff that goes on. No. And it's like l- the stories are legendary, and they're all true. Like, the stuff that happens, it's – you you can't make it no, up. No, you can't and, make it and up. And if you're oh, not – For sure. And anybody Here, that's a good in a one. band – if- Tim, we got to Japan, and they gave us a translator – uh, and so we, Tim wanted to say some stuff in J- J- uh, Japanese. So he wrote down in English, a couple phrases, and this translator does a great job of translating it and teaching Tim how to say it. And Tim brought this book. It was a translation book and he tried a couple things out of the book and it worked and it must've given him a, a false sense of security got, on the I accuracy of this, of the translations in the book. And so. Well, first time we went to Japan, we were in Tokyo first, and that's when we had this translator. And then we went to Osaka, but the translator didn't come with us. So when we got to Osaka, Tim decides that he wants to ad lib and go off of uh, and go away from some of the things that uh, this translator had written on the sheet. So he goes to the book and he says, I want to say, we'll see you. We'll see you next time or we'll see you real soon. And so he looks it up and he says it. This was a wide club. It wasn't deep. It was wide. And uh, okay. And the horns are on the right-hand side, and I'm looking at the end of the gig. Tim's doing this. He's got the crowd. crowd's going crazy. And I'm looking at the opening band, which was really – they were really cool guys, and we were having a great conversation with them backstage. And Tim goes over to the left side and throws up his hand, and he says whatever it was. I assume he decide or something like that. And I – we're all the horns are looking at – the opening band and they're like <laughs> and tim's not looking he's looking the other way and he gets to the middle of the room he's like throw your hands in there and they're they're all those guys started dying and at this point i see these they guys start, start to crack up laughing they're they're, they're like, fucking Uh-oh. crying they're uh, laughing uh, something's so hard not good here and tim comes over to the right side he's like throw your hands up in the air i assume you decide and these guys are dying laughing but now tim <laughs> sees them laughing and he looks at us i'm like i don't know what you said man and the gig ends and we we go off stage, go back to the back room, and these guys are in the in the dressing room. They're crying, and Tim goes, "What did I say?" 
And they said, what did you want to say? And Tim goes, I, I just want to say, we'll see us. We'll see you next time or we'll see you soon. And the guys were like, they couldn't, they barely keep their composure. They're like, you basically invited the whole entire club back to your hotel room to have sex. Awesome. <laughs> well, at, yeah. least you, at least you didn't offend them. Can't, that's, can't that's make that right. up, right? <laughs> no. No. Yeah, that was something. So did they all show up? <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful thing about it is obviously, you know, they, they're they in your corner. Yeah. So they knew this poor dude's just trying to, he's just trying to, like, be one of us. And he's not making it. Nice, no. <laughs> nice try, funny American. <laughs> I know. My favorite was always when you do a sh- you kind of do a shitty gig and not a lot of people are there. You always get like, and it's well-meaning, but you always get like the one guy that'll come up to you. It's like, man, such a drag. You guys are awesome. More, I wish more people would be here. You know, I-, I got a friend. I got a friend who can help hook you up with like, we'll, we'll get you more people here next time. You know, there's always that one, <laughs> one dude that's like, he's got like the friend that's going to bring more people next right, time. Right. And there's always the, the one person like, man, you guys are amazing. Why isn't there anybody here? Because <laughs> social media hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> yeah, this this has been fun, guys. As we're getting close to the end here, with Corona going on, obviously we can't go and see live music, so playlists are a big thing now. What are you guys listening to? Um, I've been listening to a lot of... Uh, stuff out of uh the, a lot of the guys in the 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 camp of uh lettuce the band lettuce i don't know if you've okay. heard of them eric krasno's the guitar player he's a great producer um and the singer uh of that group is a cat named nigel hall and he uh he came out with an album called introducing Ni- uh, nigel hall um and it i'm i'm like knee deep in it it's so cool um, is there a certain genre they are, or is it just a whole bunch of different influences? Soul R and B, you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it sounds modern, but yet like it was made in the '60s. Uh, nice. That kind of stuff. Very nice. Cool. Yeah. So it's it's got a real hip 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 vibe to it. Are you listening to anybody, Tim, right now that you want to mention? Um. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been listening to a lot of. Uh, I've been listening. I've been going back and listening to a lot of old records that I used to listen to a lot. I haven't checked out a lot of new things recently. I mean, there's stuff I like. I love the stuff Al was talking about. Like, uh, yeah, I've, yeah. I've 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 checked stuff out, but people I'm listening to right now. I mean, I don't know. I'm like listening to Bar Talk right now. Um, cool. Nice. Cool. Uh, cool. And you know, just you know, Kenny Barron, just piano players and it's mostly jazz stuff I've been listening to lately. Yeah. So, uh, kind of, kind of just depend. It depends on the day, I guess. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, on the I, day I mean, sure. a lot of that also, Tim is like, you have a subscription to Apple music and you know, like back in the day, right. You'd buy a CD and then that CD was in, right. you know, or or six CDs, and those six CDs went in your CD disc changer in your car, and you, you know, you just 
crush those, you know, over and over and over and over again. And it's not like that anymore. Now you're like, I'm in the mood for this. And you put in, I want to listen. I just did the the other day. I was painting my, my sister bought a a new old house and I was helping her paint. And I turned on the cannonball Adderley and it was just, you know, like, I don't, I'm not picking individual songs from individual, uh, but I'm in that mood, you know? Frank Sinatra. I'm in a Frank. I'm making spaghetti sauce. I want to listen to Frank Sinatra, and it's just like this stream of it's so you, the way you dial listen, up what different. you're listening to now is is right. so different than it used to be. And then yeah. there's times where like, I hey man, I somebody just talked about Al Jarreau, and I went specifically to go listen to this Al Jarreau album from 1982 with this song called Sticky Wicket, you know, and it's some of the funkiest, <laughs> funkiest stuff that like, but I had to go back and then you go, you'll go back and listen to this uh, specific thing. And then you go down the YouTube rabbit hole because after that video, it's got these five, right? you know, suggested videos. So it's just like, depending on what venue you're in, you listen to music so differently nowadays than we used to. So it's almost better. I don't know. Is it better? Is it worse? I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it, it is, it's what it is, right? That's how it, it happens now. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I, I think there's something to be, because funny, it's funny, even with Apple Music and all that, I, I still can't, I still listen to albums. Like, yeah. I still do that. Like, I got to focus on, but with that said, it's much easier to jump from album to album. Right. The the thing is is it's there's something to be said about having it's just it it's almost too easy. So part of I how think, much music do you have access to in this little thing, man? It's it's right. Banana. Yeah, and it's like I think a lot of some of that the way people listen to live music, I think it's being affected by the fact that they have way too much easy access to whatever they want. So they don't, and also this whole like you know, one minute culture that we're in, you know, it's all of those things tie together. It's just like, you know, when we were in, you know, when I was a kid, when we were in college, (laughs) I, I saved up money to get a Bill Evans record. And that was the only record I had or CD at that time, you know, until I got a little money together to buy another one. Or maybe I, maybe I splurged and was able to buy like three CDs or something, you know, right. Uh, that's what you had to live with, you know? Yeah, it felt cool, like, oh, this one has two CDs in it. This is awesome. Right. Oh, and just the act of opening it up and reading the liner notes and yeah, that whole physical yeah, you visceral you know, Nobody thing. reads liner notes anymore, right? Like, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a negative, you know? You don't, get yeah. the, you don't get a chance. No, you don't know who, who worked on it. You don't know who the special musicians are on it. You just, they make you work. this person's You got to work album. for that. You got to work for that information. Thankfully, right, exactly. I know they're trying to get that that mega data back into it, but I think it's going to take a while to get it in there. I know, like Title, a streaming service, they have the credits, which is nice. Title is really great because that's also Title is basically it's like lossless Apple Music, basically, right? Yeah, right. That's the one I use. I have Apple and I have Title because I want to I want to know who's playing on the albums, and I have Apple because I. Before Apple became streaming, I had so many albums uploaded onto there, so I'm, I'm not going to get rid of that. Right, exactly. Well, guys, 
We are at the end of the podcast. Any last words any of you would like to leave before we play you out? I'll leave you with this one thought. Um, Okay. I'm hopeful that this pandemic has uh, hopefully grown. Uh, We we might not realize this just yet, but I'm hopefully it it has grown people's appreciation for live music. Um, I I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick and tired of live streams. Um, yeah. You know, um, I, I, it just, it, it was cool in the beginning and we'll call it a band aid, but, um, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's not, the, it's not the same. Live. It's not the same. And, and, uh, I want to go obviously play live music, but I also want to go see it. And yep. so, um, Did, I'm yeah. hopeful that, Amen. That, that this has, you had asked about the, 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 the current, live music local live music scene i'm hoping this is a, a shot in the arm for it i hope so too did it's, you guys what happened did you guys hear what happened in new york state they just passed um a law banning any any establishment charging a cover okay so they have to pay the band or the band plays for free or the the establishment can't charge a cover to patrons coming into the establishment um, so if a restaurant's having music, uh, the music must be treated as incidental music. Uh, and I think this applies to venues. How, how could that apply to a venue? It's a, it's a coronavirus measure. Oh, okay. I know what you, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's temp, that's temporary. That's gotta be temporary. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fears that it's not. There's no way. There's no way that could not be temporary. There's there's 12 music venues in New York that have sued the state of New York because there's wording in the in the in the bill that says that this could continue after the pandemic. Gentlemen, this was phenomenal. Very informative. <laughs> so thanks, Tim. Thanks, Al. Thank you very much for those kind words. Thanks, and, man. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Well, there you have it. There is Wisconsin's own fat function. I'd like to thank Nate Whitecock of Frequency Farm Recording in Wisconsin for writing the podcast music. Dean Bundy for the podcast voiceover intro. And to our sponsor, ZTF Studio. ZTF Studio has been around for about 20 years. First as Concrete Dog Bicycle in Kenosha as a live room recording studio. And now ZTF Studio is a professional mixing studio for musicians that are actively putting together their next album or song releases ztf studio offers a free trial mix no strings attached so contact zach at ztfstudio.com that function is going to play us out so here's their song well run dry off their latest release real life high fidelity have a great week and i'll see you again on monday